<laughs> oh my god. What was that? Translate? Does that? Is that bad? Oh, that's bad. <laughs> C-Lab, the customer education laboratory, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice to stop growth dead in its tracks. I am Dave Darrington. And I'm Adam Evermescu. Today is National Backwards Day. So in honor of that, let's hear it backwards. All right. And we are happy to have Linda Schwaber-Cohen here with us today. Linda, would you like to give a quick introduction to yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so thanks for having me, both of you. Dave, Adam, it's a pleasure to be here. As you said, my name is Linda Schwaber-Cohen. I work at Skilljar. We are a customer training platform. And I, generally speaking, am extremely passionate about customer onboarding and education and have been for quite some time. And quickly about me. I started my career in education as a school teacher and shifted to technology where I've really been focused on establishing first and foremost onboarding programs at startups and later moving into this role at Skilljar where I get to spend a lot of time with a variety of companies of large and small and who are building and expanding on their training programs. Fabulous. That's excellent. And, and Linda, one of the things that I really love about working with you is that uh, not just do you have that background, but both through your work in Skilljar and through going out to different industry conferences, you learn what a lot of different customer education programs are doing. And so you actually get to see a ton of trends in the market. So that's actually what the focus of our talk today will be all about. Yeah, I'm excited to dig in. Fantastic. Why don't we do a, a quick frame up? Because I know we have a few topics and I'm going to be facilitator and make sure we don't lose track of that as we get going. And this can be organic and fun. Hopefully, right? <laughs> so I think we're going to start off with one of the topics you're really passionate about, several of them, in fact, starting with scale. Then we're going to dip into uh, what you would call federated search. And I want to hear more about what that actually means. Anytime anybody says federated, I'm like, uh. Um, so let's, let's talk about that and then getting into visibility of training data. So with that, let's start talking about scale. Yeah. So we talked about trends and when I say start with scale, I'm thinking about an older model that I have seen uh, throughout the years where, especially with startups, you start out with one individual person doing one-to-one -one trainings or maybe even one-to-many trainings. Um, usually it's VILT, so over a WebEx or a go-to-meeting platform. Um, usually it's somewhat custom, but oftentimes it's really they're just saying the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and that's just the easiest way to kind of eliminate low-hanging fruit, I think, in a lot of startups' minds, and that's what we've seen in the past. Totally. What I've seen over the past year or so and what I think we'll continue to see as startups get more sophisticated and the, I think, general customer education industry gets more sophisticated is that education needs to start with scale. So the way that we used to do it, while it might be somewhat effective on a one-to-one -one basis, it's not cost-effective at all. And so over time, you're not taking a strategic approach. You're creating habits that need to be broken later. And you're not thinking about the program programmatically. You're really just sort of 
like I said, picking at that low-hanging fruit and trying to get people taken care of in an unscalable way. So what I see really is companies changing that and starting with the more scalable approaches. And to me, that is starting with the one-to-many approach or the on-demand approach um, where you're really creating content that can be consumed universally by your entire customer base, content that addresses user onboarding challenges rather than just account onboarding challenges, um, and really addresses the fact that in this world, people leave jobs fairly frequently, and we're all battling with new contacts at different companies that we serve on a regular basis. So how do we serve those needs? Totally. Let me ask you a quick question here, because like when we were chatting beforehand, I think that we we all agreed that this is kind of kind of running counter to what the original advice was with you're saying start with scale that means on demand that means you know getting it up in a platform like Skilljar for example and even when I started out doing this years ago it was start with instructor led first so that's kind of a bold claim but I think all of us in the room have done it that way and it's different for every company, but I support you on that because I'm doing it in two, I've done it in two different companies. Yeah, and I think that it it's really challenging because it requires somebody to say, think strategically about this and guard yourself in this room and don't address <laughs> the individual needs of customers right away on day one. It says, um, take a month or two and build out some content that we can use more broadly, for example, in the beginning. Even if you're not going to go big with like, a customer training platform or an LMS or whatever you'd like to call it. Yeah. And um, it requires taking the time to plan. And um, and you can still address problems, I think, with instructor-led training. You can still charge for instructor-led training. You can still have instructor-led training to supplement that coursework. But I think that you end up saving yourself a lot of time and able you're able to make a much larger impact if you start with scale. We, we talk a lot on this show about the idea of, you know, myths and received wisdom that, that gets passed down to training professionals. And a lot of it is, you know, we do things because that's the way it was done. And it seemed like part of the reason that we, we start with instructor-led training or even, you know, just one-to-one customer training is, is not just because it's easy, but it's because it, it always has been done. Um, so I... I, I definitely see the same trend that you're seeing where that's starting to shift and people are starting with a more scalable approach. But one argument that I've heard for why you might want to start with ILT or something that's more one-to-one is because it gives you more of a platform to experiment and to iterate, and it's much easier to change something that you're delivering um, one-to-one than, than you know if you go and produce this whole e-learning course or certification program or something like that, and then you have to go back and change that. Have you seen customers um, iterating their way towards starting with scale, or is that is that too heady of a concept? <laughs> no, it's totally reasonable, and actually it's, it's so great that you brought that up, because one of the reasons that I think people were resistant to starting with scale was because e-learning in the past was an articulate module or a captivate module and it was SCORM and it was difficult to develop and you needed a specialist who could create that content. But I think that customers are a lot more forgiving with regard to content quality these days, um, especially in the tech realm where both all three of us tend to play in. Um, so you have this ability to even just take a webinar I call them deconstructed webinars. I slice them up, serve them in a platform that people can kind of eat them up in 
a, a more bite-sized way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever. Call it micro learning. Call it whatever you want. Call but it chocolate-covered pretzel. Yeah, bites. <laughs> peanut butter filled stars, and you're ready to go. There you go. Yeah. Right, we're gonna deconstruct it, <laughs> and in that way, you're able to create this scalable content that doesn't have such lofty overhead and is much easier to re-record. Um, so in the hour that you would spend doing a one-to-one training, you could have re- recorded something that's maybe a little bit more generic um, and yeah. maybe took a couple of hours more planning to figure out how you're going to make it more generic, but then you can reuse it and, and have it serve a much larger population. Totally. And something I wanted to interject, and I, I wanted to get your take on this. So while I was at, at Gainsight in particular, we had pretty high demand for people doing instructor-led, virtual instructor-led classes. And we also had a high demand to go back and resurface and redo all of that existing on-demand content. And one of the strategies that I did is said, okay, I'm going to do one thing. And what I ended up doing for that was I did those virtual instructor-like classes, and then I literally cut them up and put them and updated my on-demand on the fly. So every time I did it, I put the latest and then did it again and put the latest. And that way, it was constantly being resurfaced, and I was doing both things at once. I didn't have to worry about it. So I had a... I'm interested in your take on that. Was Is that a strategy that any of your customers use? Yeah, for sure. And actually, when people ask me how to get started with an on-demand strategy, it's usually the first thing that I recommend because it just it's much less intimidating to get oh, yeah. started. Um, so absolutely. And I also would say that if you're going to spend an hour presenting something and then you're never going to surface it again, it's a shame. Um, and it's gotcha. a great opportunity to make it public and make sure that as many people as possible can consume it. Fabulous. Any more thoughts on scale? Ah, Starting with scale sounds like a great place to start. It's cool. Well, love it. I mean, we're with the podcast, it's on demand scale too. You know, we do it once and we put it online. It's, it's that, that kind of motif. Well, let's, Let's shift over because let's get to this federated thing. It sounds like Star Trek. <laughs> the Federation the of Search. I, I think of Fettuccine. I'm hungry, man. <laughs> I'm always hungry. That's what I'm thinking about Fettuccine. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So let's talk about let's talk about Federated Search. What do you mean by that? What what are we trying to accomplish here? Yeah, so essentially traditionally businesses might have several different systems that can be searched with different kinds of resources. So if you imagine your help center, maybe your learning management system, maybe your community platform, um, other documentation that might be surfaced in different places. Um, And in order to find things on any one of these platforms, you would have to go into that specific login and use a search bar there. And you would only be you would only get the results that relate to that one resource. So you would only get your help center documentation, for example. And what Federated Search really does is it puts the power in the hands of the users. So rather than just finding one thing and having to navigate and get frustrated, with Federated Search, you can actually see things across all of your resources. So if you have content, let's say, in a training platform, you can search in one place and it would lead you there um, without having to actually be in there initially. So maybe that's a landing page experience or maybe you just have different systems connected so that you're surfacing results from other systems within. So it's like a community to um, skill jar and then maybe Zendesk or something like that. Do you have integrations with different customer support platforms? Yeah, exactly. So th- that would be a couple of companies that could be 
added to the Federation, as you might say. <laughs> is that, it, which universe are we talking about now? The All right. Sorry. We're running out too hardcore. <laughs> but basically, you would be able to query any of those resources anytime you're searching in a search bar. So it. It, it just allows you to have access to so much more information and also allows you to understand all the different ways that you can possibly consume that information depending on your preferences. We actually did this uh, several years ago at Optimizely. When we first started out, we just had a knowledge base and that lived in Zendesk. And you could search for, you know, sort of, sort of like we were saying earlier, you could search for help center articles in Zendesk. But then when we started to implement a community and we started to implement uh, a customer training platform, we, we wanted that same effect, right? We almost wanted to have that Amazon experience for our learners where, you know, when you come to that first site, you don't have to, you know, for Amazon, you don't have to go and search for the specific um, Audible book that you're looking for and then go search for the, uh, uh, you know, the Amazon Prime movie that you're looking for. You just use that one search bar and we wanted to create that same experience. And so that was an example of, of setting up that federated search. So we actually had... Um, our customer training platform and our community and our knowledge base all federated in the same search results in there. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great example, and that's exactly what I mean. And on top of that, you can um, just make sure that that specific search technology is being surfaced in all of the different platforms that you might be using. So regardless of where you might be, I'm, I'm basically using the same search engine through whatever third-party federated search technology I might employ. Speaking of that, of, of the third-party technology, are you seeing people um, try to homebrew these systems using an algorithm on top of like Solar Search or Elasticsearch or one of these more, um, I don't know if they're open source per se, but like one of these third-party technologies? Or are you seeing people go with more of like the vendors like uh, Algolia or Imbenta or um, I'm sure there's other names out yeah. there that I'm forgetting. Coveo is a big one as well. Coveo, yeah. Um, to be honest, I see more of the vendor play, and I think that might have something to do with the fact that customer education teams are oftentimes really hard-pressed to find technical resources. Um, it's a challenge that I see no. regularly. <laughs> um, and I think it's something that we can empower customer education teams to do. And actually, it's really fun when I get to chat with a team that has a developer on staff, for example, who's just serving that need because they get to do so many cool things and the sky's the limit. Um, but in a lot of these situations, they need to make it as easy as possible and typically the vendor route does that for them. Totally, when you're building, even though it might seem like a cheaper price tag to start with, you, you definitely have to pay more down the line in terms of manual effort. And I know at Optimizely, when, when we were using a more of a proprietary home-built one, we were always having to go back and kind of reconfigure the algorithm ourselves. And well, that's not always fun. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then you almost need to involve like a product management mm -hmm. person in, in the project as well, because you might not even understand how to spec out the work or scope it. Um, so... I think that oftentimes, the, although actually you can run into that with vendors as well to some extent, mm -hmm. and I think it just alleviates some of that burden and makes it a little bit more approachable. Now, I guess one, one other question about this is when we're talking about federated search right now, we're making an assumption that uh, this is something that maybe lives in your customer training platform or in your help center or in your community, or maybe it's in like the top nav of all of them, mm -hmm. like, like I've done a couple of times. Um, 
but there are other places where theoretically information might be federated, right? Like notably in, in your product in or your maybe product. in organic yes. search. So what, what, are you, what are you seeing there? Um, I'm seeing a perpetual battle between product management and training teams. Um, I talked a lot about this actually on a recent webinar with um, Melanie Gallo from Zenefits. Um, so every product team thinks that their product is really intuitive, right? They built it, they designed it. Um, so for them to think... <laughs> oh, we're all going to laugh now. That's, that's literally like the first Sorry, paragraph. friends. Of, the first paragraph of my book. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it's a really common thing that we see really frequently is this product teams just assuming that everybody should be able to hop into the product and know how to use it because they built it and it's easy and it's intuitive. Um, so... For somebody to come in, and usually that's a training person or a customer success person who's saying we're having difficulty with product adoption or customer retention or onboarding or training, um, and it would really help if we could surface these resources front and center so that they can get the just-in-time resources, our customers can get the just-in-time resources that they need, um, you get a lot of pushback. You, you do. And it's very hard because, well, the product team has their things, their priorities, and they're trying to do stuff. And then you come along and say, I did this just this week. I said, look, I need an NPS survey question that comes up in every training module. How can we do this? They're like, ugh. <laughs> and it's understandable because there's a timeline. Yeah. And they want to build new products, right? They want to build new features. And oftentimes, and I think this is another one of the interesting challenges, is how do you get training to be thought of as a product? Yeah, but look, we've got a copy of Adam's book right here. Dave's <laughs> rifling through it. And, and I, rem I remember reading yeah. today something out of that. And one of, the, one of the statements that I know I've made in the past is that customer education is a product. It is. You can theoretically sell it if you, if you need to, but... If I challenge my product team to think, look, I'm, I'm kind of like product manager in that I'm building and, and articulating all these concepts and putting them in, in, a, in a place. And in fact, we have a platform right now that's very dev heavy. And so our product people are starting to see, oh my gosh, okay, that's wrong. That, I can help with that. And they're starting to get really engaged in the customer education development process, which blew my mind. But yet it's, it's very challenging. It is a product if you start getting product to understand that. Yeah, and, and although this isn't very popular among especially smaller companies who are really struggling with customer retention or focusing on customer retention, one of the best ways to get your product team to see training as a product is to charge for training. Um, because if you have a line of cash coming in as a result of whatever you're producing, then it's something that they can actually justify working on. Um, so it is something to consider. Actually, some of the most robust teams that I've had the pleasure of working with when they're implementing SkillJar and implementing programs in general mm -hmm. that have huge teams of resources, like a project management resource and a product management resource and a dev resource, those are the, those are the ones that are going to be collecting revenue for training. Yep, that's something to, to aspire to. Yeah. Depending on, and it doesn't work for everybody, but, you know, I'd certainly like to have a budget. <laughs> yeah. It, all, it also depends what your model is, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking back to uh, SkillJar Connect and to Suzanne's Ferry's talk about the different models for, uh, for a training program or for a customer education program and how, you know, you might want to make it free if the function of your customer education program is to... Um, to generate leads or net new names or, or whatever, but if you're not doing that and that's not explicitly what your customer education program is there to do, then maybe trying to charge for it 
um, or use it as an expansion tool actually makes more sense. Yeah, and I don't think they're... I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Like, I don't think you have to have one or the other. We see a ton of freemium models in training. Uh, and D- can, Dave and I are shaking our heads yeah. as, as you're saying that. Yeah. And, and you can absolutely get to do the stuff that supports some of the goals that your customer success team might have or you might have from a product adoption standpoint, but also support some of the profit center type goals as well. Yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that most common across your customer base to see a mix um, I don't think most of our customers are charging for training today. Um, but it sounds like maybe they should. If they do, maybe. it is a mix, mostly. Yeah. There's also the subscription model, right? And actually, that was something that we flirted with talking about today Yeah, let's, talk, let's talk about subscriptions yeah, so while the, we're here. Well, yeah. before you do, I have one more question on, this, on search, is that... Um, I don't think we've even talked about it yet, but one of the things that I think is super important is being able to action upon who's searching and for what. Mm. So that, like Google Analytics or whatever, you can start looking through that and saying, oh my gosh, my top, my 80% of my, the questions that I'm getting or the search uh, queries that I have are on these topics. And guess what? I'm missing some of them. And I'm sure you've seen this problem too. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I love that you brought that up because... Personally, I love taking a data-driven approach to content creation. Um, And one of the biggest resources that we have as content creators is our search bar information. Um, Short of asking customers, and actually, to be perfectly honest, when you ask customers, you're probably getting less accurate information than when you're actually looking at search bar results. They're really looking at (laughs) Yeah. We don't want to know. It's very subjective, right? You ask me, and the thing that I most recently needed is on my mind. But I look at the data, and I can look at a year's worth of search, and I can actually see what people really needed. And also, I can see if they found what they needed, potentially, too, based on where they might have gone, especially if I have a Google Analytics solution and I'm looking at bounce rates, for example, on certain pages. Um, So I absolutely think that that's another great use case for having a great search platform in place is that you can easily see how people are searching what they need and and where you might be missing the mark. Mm -hmm. Great for that ROI. Um, Absolutely. We're we're ready to go back to uh, subscriptions. Subscriptions. Let's talk about subscriptions. Let's talk about That's a a, a tough topic. I would subscribe to this topic. (laughs) Yeah, and remember, uh, if you're, if you're, uh, have a friend out there, get them to subscribe to CE Labs. That, oh, great plug. That was, so organic. <laughs> that, was, that was as organic as the organic search platforms that help you find information. Okay, we're done. All right. Linda, tell us about subscriptions. Take it away. Well, it's interesting. So the question you asked me a moment ago is, do most of our skills our customers charge for training? And I don't have the data um, on hand right now to tell you whether most of them do. Um, but I do see that it really largely depends on the size of the company. So you still have the larger companies who have more resources. And I'll say that I think that it's easier to charge for something, especially like a subscription when you have more resources um, charging. Whereas a lot of these smaller companies who are really actually aren't, they're, they're really just interested in their annual recurring revenue, they don't care quite as much about charging for training. Because especially if you're charging one-off for courses, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, they're being measured, especially if they're still VC-backed, for example, by the revenue that they're retaining and, and how they're growing that revenue. So 
Yeah. They don't really care. But if I but if I have a training subscription and all of a sudden someone's paying me for my content, now I'm under pressure to continually update that content and I need more resources to produce new courses and all of that, right? Yeah, exactly. So a subscription is really not valuable to the learner if there's not something that they can continuously come back in and engage with, right? So if you have two courses, then you're, it's really silly to start with a subscription. And actually, whenever customers come and they're building out their program and they say they want to start with a subscription, the first question I ask them is, well, what content are you going to be building over? Like, what's your roadmap for content over mm -hmm. the next year? How are you going to keep adding value to that subscription? Um, and how are you going to keep your learner engaged? Because if I can consume all of your content in three days, then why would I ever want a year-long subscription to it? It doesn't make much sense at all. Yeah, you don't have it gated in any means. So it's just all, you know, if you're not developing the content and you have it gated and you're continuing to add to it, that's valuable. Yeah. If it's not gated and it's free anyway, then mm, it's hard, hard to, to do that. Are you seeing people do anything else to sweeten the pot aside from just creating more content? Um, you know... I've seen a couple of interesting, I would say, attachments of training to different kinds of subscriptions. So whereas we're talking about a training subscription, I've seen things like, oh, you can actually buy this premium subscription and have access to all of this additional training resources. So that still relates to content, I would say. The other thing that I've seen and actually... TechSmith does this with um, Camtasia. They have a Camtasia certification, but you can't get certified unless you buy their maintenance package. Mm -hmm. So certification would be another um, reward, I would say, that could help you sweeten the pot for people to to opt into a larger plan, potentially. Yeah, I think I've also seen some people do like office hours or things like that that are exclusive to people who have subscriptions. So they're... I don't know if that's content or not, but that's that's definitely time that's being dedicated to people who are investing in a higher degree. Yeah, and I say that's a, a great way to do it if it's an open office hour and you're not committing to deliver five hours of training within the year of your subscription. Yeah. Because then you have to keep track of what you delivered and there's, I think, some procurement. Revenue recognition. Yeah. yeah and, you have and to take care of all of that stuff. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and that presents a whole slew of other challenges. So I think subscriptions should be really purely on-demand offerings with maybe another thing that people can opt into um, and in, enjoy the benefits of, but not that you're committing to anything live. That's fun. And I know your platform could definitely handle that. I wanted to mention one of the things I've seen recently came out of Patreon. Um, and I've noticed, and, and obviously we're big into podcasting right now. And I, I, I think that there's a lot of other modalities of training that, and for customer education that we really haven't dive, you know, been diving into yet. Podcasting is a big deal. So one of the things that I did, I have done with uh, Azuqua is had the Connector podcast. And we do that on a regular cadence. Patreon now has a way to surface a paid podcast. Mm. So it's locked down, and if you subscribe to it and pay for that, then you get this special thing. It's like the Slate Plus model. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I, it, for business, I don't know if that would work quite right at this point, but it's just an idea. There's all these different ways that you can feature additional content and make a revenue stream off of it. Absolutely, and I think that there's opportunity to get creative as long as you're careful about what you're contracting into that subscription. Right, you don't <laughs> yeah. have to promise yeah. anything crazy or, or be writing custom SOWs for each uh, subscription. Exactly. So as long as you're able to make sure that you can fulfill whatever commitments you're making, um, 
your set, I think. So maybe this is an off-the-wall question, but as we were talking about this, I just started thinking orthogonally. Um, wow, math. That there's your word of the day. <laughs> or geometry. Yeah, it is, it is geometry. Everything's geometry. Uh, well, no, here, here's what I'm thinking about. Like, you have all of these companies who are moving towards a trend of offering training subscriptions. And one thing that that reminds me of a little bit is the fragmentation of the on-demand video market. Right, because it used to be in the old days, you'd go to Blockbuster and you'd get your video, and that's the equivalent of us going and delivering ILTs. And then all of a sudden, you started to see these different uh, streaming networks pop up, right? And so mm -hmm. you'd get your Netflix subscription, and maybe you'd have a Hulu or maybe you'd have an Amazon Prime. Um, but now you're starting to see uh, CBS on demand, and Disney's going to have one, and uh, you know there, there's just going to be this big fragmentation in the market of. Uh, of streaming subscriptions, and one of the predictions that people are making is that's going to reduce consumers' tolerance to um, to actually subscribe to all of them, right? Because now all their stuff isn't in one place. So I guess one thing I'm wondering is, like, do you think something like that will end up happening if more SaaS companies and more tech companies are moving towards on-demand um, pricing models for their training? Are people going to start is that going to backfire and are people going to want to say, hey, just put this all on LinkedIn Learning or put this all on Udemy or put this all on, uh, you know? Yeah, it's a fair question. Um, but I think that every professional uses a finite number of tools um, or software or generally speaking products. Um, so my hope is that that fatigue is limited by what each person specializes in. Um, and what I'd say, and one of the values of subscriptions from this perspective from the business owner, the person who's selling the subscription, um, is that when you sell a subscription, you have an opportunity to sell it at the point of sale of whatever other contract you're selling. So it's really hard to get somebody, an individual contributor to borrow the credit card of somebody and pay this $400 bill and ask for it separately. But if I'm an executive and I'm making a large investment in software because I want to see specific results, then at that point, it's much easier to convince me for good reason um, that it's also worthwhile to tack on this much smaller fee that will actually help all of the people in my business become successful with that investment um, and thus make it worthwhile. So I think that from a buyer perspective, subscriptions can be really compelling because they can just help make sure that the resources are available for your team members to succeed. Got it. So, so you're really even even if the there's a subscription fee attached and that's the mechanic that you're using, really you're not you're not doing it for its own sake. You're doing it to protect the larger investment. Exactly. Yeah. It's and in, it's in some ways insurance, right? It's how do I make sure? And uh, we could argue probably for a full hour about the value <laughs> of insurance for a variety of reasons. But that's I think what it is for an executive. It's it's an ability to say this is this is how I'm going to insure my investment. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows how to use it. And the alternative or the traditional alternative is spending loads of money on an in-person training yeah, um, yeah. that people forget before they even have fully implemented software. Well, yeah. next time all three of us are sitting in a room together like we are right now, I will I will talk to you about the merits of <laughs> investing in life insurance as an investment policy. <laughs> oh my Sounds good. I look forward to that. All right, day. but no, we're talking we're talking about hard results, and that's actually a really good transition, I think, into our our last trend, uh, which is really around the way that we measure the value of training. 
you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So we've talked a lot in various forums, you and I, together, all three of us, I would say, actually, Mm -hmm. about just being able to look at data and understanding how training is really making an impact on the business. And anybody who's heard me speak about data hears me talk about the merits of completion rates um, and a variety of other vanity metrics around training. Um, but what I see... Vanity metrics. I like how you say that. <laughs> there you go. What are you, you going to... Scorn in her voice. <laughs> <laughs> but what I see changing so and what really excites me because I think it gets training a bigger seat at the table or a better seat at the table is the ability to truly understand how training impacts the larger business. And in order to do that, you have to get training data out of its silo. Um, and... It could be one place, right? So it could be your LMS. It could be, we could be saying training data and mean things related to help center as well. We, it really depends on the scope of your program at your organization. Um, but what we're seeing is really just companies doubling down on their demands for visibility into training data and training teams getting wiser about how they demonstrate usually correlations, but they're still powerful. Causation's um, what we want. That's hard to get to. Oh, it, I, it, I would almost argue it's impossible. Um, no. <laughs> but it's very, very challenging. It depends on what you're looking at. Um, but what you're seeing is real proof that trained customers are better customers. And to me, that means that they're spending more money with your business, that they're renewing at a higher rate, that they're adopting your product more, that they're using your product more, and maybe they're even using it more effectively. So depending on how you're measuring it and what tools you have in place to truly analyze your data, you're getting training out of its silo. You're putting it in, let's say, your business intelligence tool and being able to analyze it alongside other data and really truly understand trends in your customer behavior. this leads me to a, a thought, and I remember I was at a Sedma conference, yeah, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, um, and I don't think you were there. I think it was Molly at the time and Pat Durante. Was mm-hmm. it Pat Durante? Yep. Um, they had talked about a topic that I was really excited about, which is integrating the, the, the training and edu- customer education debt into Gainsight mm-hmm. at the time. And it was funny because I was so excited. That's where we met. That's where we met. That's where we met, frankly. And I was so excited. This is our backstory. (laughs) I was in that room, too, and I remember that time. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But the point that I was trying to make, and and that um, we've talked... (laughs) I'm I'm really into the idea that we're just going to, like, slowly roll out pieces of our backstory (laughs) over the episodes. Like, superheroes. Yeah. Well, we we need to roll that into customer education heroes in capes. Um, No. So the thought was... I'm really passionate about this idea, and I know you have an integration with Salesforce. And by merit of that, it's an integration to Gainsight. And the thing that I was so super stoked about, and and I won't go into detail, other than to say it was really cool to be able to give a customer success team all of my training data normalized and by learner so that, that somebody wouldn't come to me and say, hey, Dave, where is Gene at in this such and such a training and I go well quit calling me bookmark this link and in a Gainsight dashboard which is the education dashboard they see everything and they can even get down granular so is that that the kind of thing that you're talking about with sharing across silos um, that's absolutely a great example and we have a lot of customers in common with Gainsight and other customer success or customer health software and um, 
I would say absolutely. There's two pieces of that. So usually I think you first have to prove the value of training before you can prove that activating customer success professionals around training is worthwhile. So what I mean by that is essentially there has to be some work done in a separate tool to say training is worthwhile and this is why. Because mm-hmm. um, in the case of Nintex, for example, customers who are trained are their ARR is 153% the ARR of Lord, what we typically amazing. see. Yeah, so and, and that's a stat that they're really public about and really excited about, and we are too. And the reason for that is because we know intuitively that training matters, but it's hard to show that across an organization and say, give us more resources to invest in this. Because um, re- it takes resources to integrate your training into Gainsight, regardless of whether or not it's simple in a system like SkillJar. You still have to... It's simple, really. Right, you still it's have to do it. And you also have to... It's straightforward, but you also have to invest in saying, okay, customer success professionals, if you see that training isn't happening, these are the steps. This is your playbook. This is what you're going to do to make sure that customers get in and get trained because we know that a trained customer is a better customer and this is the outcome that you will get if you do this. We, we took a similar approach when I was at Optimizely with really trying to spend a lot of time showing that attribution. And again, you know, we can talk about correlation and causation until the cows come home, and mm. I don't think we'll ever really, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I say, I say moo to that. There are, there are, I mean, no, that's, that's, actually, that's probably a different topic for a different time. There are some companies that really insist on being super rigorous about causation, and, and you're right, Linda, like I don't know how provable that really is when, when renewal is such a messy team sport. Yeah. But... Um, we really wanted to show at least that that our customers who were trained were overall healthier in terms of their adoption, their renewal, all of those things. Um, and then when I moved over to Checker and we were first starting the program, one of the things that really helped us was to be able to connect our skill jar data directly into our data warehouse. Because frankly, that's something that took... Um, it took a long time at Optimizely for us to build the right data pipeline and to get things into our data warehouse to be able to do that reporting. And so the fact that we were able to use a solution that essentially piped that in allowed us to get that into our data visualization tool quicker, let our data engineers work on it quicker, let our analysts analyze it quicker. Um, so that was really helpful and, and let us, I think, skip a few steps. I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of your customers connecting data out of SkillJar into other systems of record or into their data warehouse? Yeah, we're seeing it a lot, and it's becoming more and more popular, I think, over time. And what I would say is that there's an endless number of analyses you can do once you get that in there. So depending on what other tools you have that are you're using to pipe data into your data warehouse, you'll be able to learn new things. Um, A great example that I really love is looking at um, how likely is somebody to submit a support ticket on a specific topic based on whether or not they've taken training on a specific topic. So one of the easiest ways to show the ROI of training is to demonstrate a reduction in support tickets. Call deflection. Yeah, call deflection. It's hugely expensive. It's it's for, for a company. And support to support your customers essentially when you have to have like real people answering questions. So being able to take that data and say, wow, actually a customer who took this course asked far fewer questions that relate to this topic 
um, and over time be able to see that across all the topics that you're offering training mm -hmm. on, I think is really powerful. And that's one small example of how people are using data warehouse capabilities with SkillJar. That's amazing. And uh, I think one of the biggest challenges here, and I remember going through all this at Gainsight and now again at Azuqua, tooling all that up, finding the right platform to do it, connecting all these systems as a bear. But once you've got it, like one, one of the things, one of the dashboards I made at Gainsight was as a causation dashboard. And what I did is I looked into Salesforce and I looked at my accounts and I looked at the learners and they were coming out of my LMS and I joined the two. Now this took a lot and, and there's ways to, to make that easier for you. But in, in joining them, I can make a dashboard and you could do this like in Gainsight, you could do it in Tableau, you can do it in any kind of BI tool that allows you to do those kinds of things. But what was cool is I showed ARR associated with people that have had at least one or more learners go through a customer education program versus ARR for those uh, accounts that have had nobody. And I put that in front, front and center in an executive dashboard and people are like, oh. Because in our environment, we had a massive amount of support people. We had a massive amount of customer success people and a very small education team. And I kept going to them like, look at this report. We need to scale education. And I think I mean, this is Adam's favorite phrase, right? Customer education. <laughs> say it, Adam. Should I say it at the same time? Do it. Let's all, let's all three it say it. <laughs> it's, one, it's one of my catchphrases. Customer education is the scale engine of your customer's success. Yeah. No, I, Dave, you know, I think that's great. And it's hugely powerful. And it's, it hits the nail on the head in terms of making a compelling case to executives about how training influences your customer base, whether it's causation, I, I would still argue it's correlation. Um, because m while I'm no data analyst, my science brain is like, well, what's the control in this experiment? <laughs> I love that you say your science brain, you, you get 10 points to Gryffindor. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter because it, if you're able to influence and, and convey what you need to convey with that data, then it's it's doing its job. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I'm no person to argue that customer education is super valuable. I'm already, I drank well, that Kool-Aid. Well, you're sold on that. You're I drank there. that Kool-Aid long ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the good news, I think, is more and more people are starting to see that value implicitly. And so I think the there's always going to be a need for us to prove that what we do is valuable and to show the effectiveness of it. But luckily, I think the tide is increasingly uh, starting to, I, I, this is a terrible metaphor, I don't know where I'm going, but the, the, the tide is with us. Whatever's good, the good version of the tide. Yeah. yeah. It's totally. not a red tide, it's the blue one. The tide, the tide <laughs> is growing, it's rising, and it's raising all of our customer education ships with it. The boats are floating, they're going out to sea. And it should, because technology is changing so fast. Like, we are the the change agents essentially of the products that we're building. We're able to help make sure that people know how to use them and are using them effectively. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to me and I do think that message is catching on. Great, so Linda, um, if people who are listening to this podcast want to find out more about you, where should they go? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Linda Schwaber Cohen. I'm on Twitter, not very active, at Linny Schwab. And you can always hit up skilljar.com and somebody will connect you to me. And I'd be happy to chat. We will have your name in the episode title and yeah. the show notes. So yeah. <laughs> that'll make it easy to find you too. Perfect. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. This was a great time. All right. So let's wrap this up. Again, thank you, Linda, for joining us today. You can find her at www.skilljar.com or Twitter or LinkedIn, I'm sure, as well. So once again, if you want to learn more, we have our podcast website. That's simply https colon slash slash customer.education. You'll find some more information out there, such as show notes and other material. And please, if you have found value in this podcast, share with your friends, your peers, and your network. What about beers? <laughs> Over beers. Oh, man. Well, we said that because we were talking about beers that one episode, but I'm ready for a beer. All right, let's do it. And help us network and find the others. On Twitter, I'm at Dave Darrington. And I'm at Avermescu. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out, educate, experiment, and find your people. Or backwards, that's... Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Adam here from the C-Lab Podcast. I'm proud to announce that I just released a new book. It's called Customer Education, Why Smart Companies Profit by Making Customers Smarter. You can actually find it now on Amazon.com in ebook or in print format. Uh, you could also do bit.ly slash customer education. Made you an easy little bit.ly link. So I'd really appreciate it if you pick a copy up and let me know what you think. Thanks everyone.